that foundational time was spent making sure that we had the best network that we could have, that exceptional customer service, that they had a chance to make all of that part of the culture of Greenlight, and that really shines through with everything that's being done. Welcome to episode 430 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Marcatilio-McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today on the podcast, Christopher welcomes back Will Aycock, General Manager of Wilson, North Carolina's Municipal Network Greenlight, and Rebecca Agner, Communications and Marketing Director for the City of Wilson. It's been more than two and a half years since we've spoken with them, and both the city and the network have been busy, continuing to provide fast, affordable internet to residents, while also undertaking a host of projects to strengthen the community and bridge the digital divide. Christopher talks with the duo about what it took for the city to be named one of the 10 best small towns in the country to start a business in 2019. How Greenlight is spearheading efforts to make sure the county's most economically vulnerable residents have options to connect in 2020, and the network's future plans as it approaches paying off its debts in the near future. Now here's Christopher talking with Will and Rebecca. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today, I'm bringing back one of my favorite guests of all time, Will Acock, the General Manager of Greenlight Community Broadband in Wilson, North Carolina. Welcome back, Will. Thank you, Chris. Uh, You're too kind, but I will say this is one of my very favorite shows to participate in as well. You always have some of the most interesting things to say. Um, You're doing some of the most interesting work to make sure that everyone in your community can benefit from the network. Um, And so I want to check in on some of those things, some of the things that we learned a little bit about the last time we talked to you about two and a half years ago, uh, and then update folks on the rest. Um, So the first thing is, do you just want to give us the 90-second sketch for people who have recently joined the show and aren't familiar with Eastern North Carolina? What's Wilson like and what have you been up to? So Wilson, uh, a a small city um, or a large town, depending on how you like to look at it, in eastern North Carolina. Uh, Historically, we've been known as a market center for agriculture, in particular the Brightleaf tobacco market. Um, We have a a long and really proud history of being the world's largest tobacco market. Um, And we're also a community that has often believed in uh, investing in ourselves um, and public infrastructure as a means to help ensure prosperity for not just the city, but also for the region yeah, as a electric, natural gas, water, and broadband provider. You know, we really see ourselves as a, as a regional service provider trying to help uh, things continue to grow. And your, your service territory for electricity uh, stretches well beyond Wilson County, right? Right. So we uh, have some service territory in each of the uh, surrounding six counties uh, for that electric distribution system. And you've been in business doing a fiber broadband network under the name Greenlight for more than 10 years now. Indeed. (laughs) It's hard to believe uh, that we are probably getting closer to 15 than 10. You know, uh, things are moving quickly. Now, if I was to move to Wilson and I wanted to take the most economically priced broadband package, what would I be looking at? Um, So you would be looking at a $34, uh, 50 meg symmetrical entry level point. You know, the next point up from there is a $54, 300 meg symmetrical service. And that's even if I didn't take any other telephone or cable or anything. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> that's remarkable. You know, I um, 
We did this study a few years ago of what had happened in Tennessee, uh, where there's uh, several citywide municipal networks, and we found that half of them had never raised their their rates for broadband. Yeah, that so basically how you started almost 15 years ago is is still how you price it. Yep, absolutely, it sure is. And uh, you know, we've only recently moved that second tier to 300 meg. It was 75 years ago, um, but we have now you know just moved everything up. So we're continuing to keep the rates the same and then try to provide more service to the subscribers. One of the first things that really put you on the map as going above and beyond for low-income um, families was a program that you work out with the public housing authority in town in which you work with them to make sure people have a high-quality $10 a month option. Um, have people been taking advantage of that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we continue to see strong adoption uh, in the public housing uh, properties, and you know, we are averaging several hundred active connections under that program at any given time. And I think in a recent, um, one of the panels I saw you on, I think you said it's it's usually on the order of two-thirds of the people take advantage of it. Is that? That's roughly correct, yeah. You know, with some you know, sort of attrition coming and going, but that, that's a pretty accurate statistic over time. And do you have a sense that it's made a difference in people's lives who are in public housing? Well, I, I know that it has, particularly over the past, you know, six to eight months as we've been dealing with this pandemic, you know, um, because with remote learning going on um, and with you know, those who are able to having to, to work from home and, and even just trying to access basic services these days, you know, when you look at uh, a customer service facility that's now shut down to walk in traffic, right? How do you function? Uh, in today's world without that broadband connectivity. You know, one of the things that we've always felt like was that having access to this broadband infrastructure was really important to people, you know, in times gone by before the pandemic, you know, through that top line of being able to access opportunity, transact business online and so on and so forth, you know, sort of the upside benefit of broadband. But what we're now seeing is, is really the opposite of that, right? Which is the, uh, the minimum required to function in society, right? This isn't necessarily now just about affording opportunity. This is about maintaining relevance because you, you know, you can't function these days very effectively without broadband. Um, and so that has just been a tremendous eye opener, I think, for us in the community, for, for us as a service provider of we have and continue to have grand uh, desires for how this is leveraged to bring value to people's lives. But it's so much more fundamental than just, you know, something to get ahead with, right? It's now truly about not falling behind. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm very worried about the education disparities we'll see coming out of this year for the people who are in districts with remote only education. But um, as we've seen, you know, I think there's been a lot of kids who have been struggling to try to compete with kids that have good connections at home. And in Wilson, I'm glad that you're working so hard to make sure everyone has that opportunity. So, well, that's the the public housing angle. But when we talked to you last, you were doing something that, that as far as I know, is pathbreaking in terms of creating an option so that families with poor credit would be able to pay ahead and get their service and also use that same system to be able to pay down past debts rather than um, you telling families that you could not access the internet until they'd paid down past debts, you developed a program to enable them to, to work it off over time and make sure they were connected. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that program and what you've learned about it as you've operated it? 
Absolutely. So the program is our prepay program, which essentially allows the customer to come in and uh, you know charge an account with a minimum amount, say twenty five dollars, um, and then that amount is drawn down over time. So you know, as they utilize the service on a daily basis, it deducts from that balance, and then whenever it gets low, the customer can simply you know recharge the balance uh, through a variety of channels. And what that allows them to do is to have service with no deposits, no credit checks, no no business rule barriers to being able to participate in the uh, program. And we have found it to be tremendously popular. And where you see that most of all is in our overall adoption rates across the community. In some of our lower income areas, pre prepay, we would have maybe seven, eight, nine percent. Uh, adoption rate in some of those areas. Uh, and, and now we're, you know, seeing much more along the order of 25 to 30% penetration in most of those same neighborhoods. So still a long ways to go. But when you look at that change, right, from less than 10% to nearly 30% adoption, clearly having a significant impact in the community uh, in terms of, of getting people uh, access that, that they need. Are people commonly using it to connect all the time or are they, is it, is it, you know, a few weeks here, a few weeks there? I mean, yeah, um, I would say it's a, a, a mixture. Uh, we know for sure there are people who are, you know, sort of using it as needed. We're very fortunate in that the way the system works, it, it is uh, self-administering. These things happen in the background through technology in terms of recharging, disconnecting the account, reconnecting the account, all those things happening. So, you know, if I pull a report right now from the last week, I'd be willing to bet that you would see a couple of hundred orders where people have, you know, reconnected and been disconnected and they're just kind of managing the service themselves. Uh, So that happens without a doubt. And one of the things that I think you must get a benefit from is um, the ability to collect cash because of your other utilities. You have this long approach. But do you have a sense of how many of the people using that program use cash as opposed to uh, credit cards that, that more you know folks like us that have a regular job would be using? Now that I don't have done, sorry, Chris, I don't have insight into the cash versus other methods of payment. Okay. But you do um, collect cash then, I'm sure, as part of the utility. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure you have uh, you have the some of those folks that come up uh, every month. They they know the uh, the customer service reps. They're catching up on the the gossip and that sort of a thing. Yeah, there's no question about that. And, you know, it's been particularly challenging because of the pandemic. Again, you know, we have opened up as many drive-through lanes as we possibly can, and you know, you will see uh, you know cars stacked up, uh, you know, kind of uh, out the parking lot and into the street as people come through for that reason to to make those payments. And now. In addition to all of that, then you have yet another lifeline type program, I think, right? Tell me about that. Right. So initially we added the lifeline program specifically to be responsive to uh, the executive order here uh, in the state, which required that we not disconnect people. Um, Well, actually required not disconnecting utilities, but we desired to not disconnect broadband either. So we essentially put people into this lifeline program, which is, you know, a minimum connection program. but one that we would not disconnect during the worst parts of the pandemic for non-payment. And we have found that to actually be popular amongst uh, certain sections of the customer base. And so we now turn that into a a permanent uh, service offering that we call lifeline service. 
Uh, and you know, similar to all our other services, is something that you can upgrade to or, or downgrade to and then upgrade to as needed. Um, so one of the things that we're finding um, is, is maybe some of the older uh, customers that we have that want to maintain connectivity, but their own fixed income, and they don't necessarily, you know, have a need for the remote learning and things that we're doing, but they can't be disconnected, right? And so we've really seen that service uh, become popular in that demographic. And what I think is interesting to look at, the, the prepay, the housing authority, the lifeline, each of these various services has a different niche, right? And so we're trying to approach the market with things that are appropriate for different segments of the market, depending on where people are. And so how exactly does the Lifeline work? What's the, the cost and the speed? So it's $10 per month. What the service is, is it is designed to provide a certain level of service, which is essentially being able to conduct a single video chat, like a Zoom or a WebEx. So we try to make sure that we're managing that service somebody's at home and needs to participate in remote you know meetings or classrooms that it will always be sufficient for that and so we are managing it based on customer feedback and what we're seeing across the network to ensure that lifeline service provides that basic level of connectivity as a minimum within the community so you know we talk about the folks who aren't on um, the in the public housing. You know, the roughly a third of folks. We there's a number of people who are still not connecting even at ten dollars a month for this Lifeline connection. Um, you know, do you have a sense of what your total market could be? I mean, is is it, is it changing? Do you have a sense? I mean, it seems like there's some number of people, no matter how low you get the price, um, are, are not going to be interested in it. Right. So yeah, we are sitting here about 45% penetration of the market passings, right? So the numbers of addresses we know that are active because of utility account data. I would suggest that we are probably somewhere in the 60 to 70% actual opportunity penetration. That's a real hard number to know though, because mm-hmm. how do you define what the real market opportunity is? Um, and, and, you know, that, that that's very much me, you know, wetting my finger and sticking it up in the air. Um, but, you know, I think something along those lines is where we actually are right now. And I do think that we are seeing growth in uh, people understanding the importance of, of broadband. Yeah. Again, going back to the world we're in right now, if you're afraid to go to the grocery store, if you want to order the groceries, right, to be picked up or brought to you, you must have broadband. Yeah. And, and so it's just so much more fundamental now. Well, I don't know that it's truly more fundamental. We are now seeing <laughs> no. oh, it how is. fundamental it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially I, I just before talking to you, I was on hold with my bank for a while. And I sure like doing things online more than waiting in hold. <laughs> and, and the phone services are overwhelmed as people are trying to figure out how to cope with this. So, and, um, and every bit of this comes down to what we at first viewed. Maybe, you know, some said, oh, this is entertainment and then luxury. And now you're really seeing now this this is fundamental essential infrastructure. Now, I want to bring in to join us Rebecca Agnar, the Director of Communications and Marketing for the City of Wilson. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thanks, Greg. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the economic development stuff that we've seen in Wilson and and congratulate you because last year you were named one of the top 10 places in the United States to uh, start a business, I believe it was, by uh, Wallet Hub, um, recognizing uh, great work that you all have been doing, creating a, a good atmosphere for business. Uh, just tell us a little bit about that, please. 
So a lot of the credit um, for that distinction goes certainly to Wilson County Economic Development. They consistently work extremely hard to bring um, more industry here and to do everything that they can to bring jobs and more investment. And from what we hear, even throughout the pandemic, they've done very well. Um, I think we have some announcements that could be coming by the end of the year. We've really built a strong um, pharmaceutical sector here and those plants are pretty much constantly expanding. So I think a lot of that distinction goes toward um, towards the, the efforts that, that they have made for sure. And then I would also say that the city infrastructure plays a huge part of that. The fact that we have um, green light as our community broadband and also um, with our electric rates that have significantly decreased, which you don't hear many things that are significantly decreasing over time. But in the last five years, we've seen um, quite a decrease. And I think that helped with our score when you looked at the affordability to start a business here. Yes, I, I recall that you were part of a consortium that had uh, some cost overruns um, for an electric um, uh, nuclear plant, I believe. And as that gets retired, you're able to um, re- recover your rates to what they really are for your own uh, your own sort of a utility. Yeah, so that we just had five years of um, right now. We're going through the the five year anniversary of that happening and. Um, that historic asset sale that, that enabled us to, re, to decrease rates by about 28% on average. Wilson Energy has continued to have an innovative approach to operations, to daily operations. And we were just in the news again this week for a new battery storage project that we're working to try to lower our costs even more. And so assuming that that all plays out well, then I would expect our score to go up in that business affordability over the years. And, you know, when you look at the community and what we do to you know, encourage innovation and to help support the economy, I think the VIA project shows that we're the first community of our size in the nation. Yes, um, I think innovation has been constantly a focus, but it's really been a good opportunity for us in 2020 because there's nothing like kind of forced innovation whenever you must make changes. And we <laughs> have a lot of examples of that that we'll be showcasing later on in the year. But again, through this pandemic, we were able to launch our new ride sharing service that replaces our transit service. Um, we were the smallest non-university community in North Carolina to operate a public transit service. And those were done with big buses. And that during a pandemic and, and during distancing and, and cleaning requirements um, is very difficult. Uh, also with as Will said before, you know, people scared to go places, then certainly they don't want to, to be on a, a cramped bus. Um, we already had this in the works for several years, and we were able through a partnership with VIA to debut Ride on September 1st, 2020, which is a much smaller scale. So we're able to now cover the entire city. It's all um, app and phone based, but it's, it's a ride sharing service um, that uses much smaller passenger vehicles to transport people. And we have had day over day, like record growth in the three weeks that it's been up and running. It's been um, really great to see the utilization. And we expect that over time that um, public transit will appeal to uh, to all Wilsonians um, and that 
people that depend on it for their daily life, that that expands because we, if we looked at a typical ride um, on the, the legacy uh, system, I think the average ride time was 45 minutes and often required a connection. Everybody had to go to mm-hmm. one central place and, and then go out from there. This takes you from exactly where you need to go, point A to point B. You may pick up somebody on the way, um, but it's it's cut down to about a third of the average time in transit. So that when you think about that, that that lets people be able to have jobs that maybe they weren't that weren't on the bus route on this fixed route system that weren't weren't available before. We are thrilled to be able to to have things like that happen, even in the midst of you know the challenges that 2020 has brought us. I think whether you're talking about county economic development, green light, uh, ride, broadly any of these things, you know, we try to be responsive, right? So when you look at why we've been rated as, you know, very fortunate to be rated as a very good place to start a business and to do business, I believe it's because we try to be responsive as a community. You know, we see where there are opportunities and needs, and we try to to, to fill that gap and meet the needs. Uh, are you collecting stories of people who are moving to town because of the network, whether for business or for uh, family reasons um, and picking Wilson or in the area because of the, the fiber network? So, yes, we uh, we we hear those stories uh, quite frequently. Um, and interestingly, we have been approached by now a major uh, national builder who is interested in doing a project here in the community that hopefully will be announced uh, within the next couple of weeks. And when they came to town, the first people they came to talk to was Greenlight because they wanted to have fiber in this development that they're looking and doing. Um, and so, you know, yes, we're seeing the individual stories and now we've got a national builder um, who it appears in part is wanting to come do business in our community because of the broadband network. Rebecca, do you have any advice for, for cities that are new to this, that, that may have built a network like uh, Wilson's Greenlight, but haven't yet figured out how to market it? Well, for us, uh, I think having you know, having the superior network has been the key driver and the customer service, the, the stories. If you just look on our Facebook page, the Greenlight Facebook page and see the stories um, that people share willingly um, and without prompting of the customer service and the responsiveness, our employees are part of the community. Um, I think that's incredibly important. I was fortunate to come in after Greenlight had already been around for almost a decade. I think I came in at about seven or eight years. That foundational time was spent making sure that we had the best network that we could have, that exceptional customer service, that they had a chance to make all of that part of the culture of Greenlight. And that really shines through with everything that's being done. And so then I get to come in whenever all this great work has already been done and I just get to to help sell it. For us, I think one of the key changes that we made or the in the next evolution of what what green light could be was creating gig east and creating a place for innovation and entrepreneurship within wilson um there's great entrepreneurs here that are doing work but the fact that we bring them together as part of a central mission that was the part that was um, not present in the community before. And also in opening into 2020 is our Gig East Exchange, which is our co-working space. Um, we have space leased already. We've had to make some changes for social distancing requirements um, and for the number of people that we can allow into the facility. But the Gig East programming has remained strong and will be even more supportive for entrepreneurs. So I think that will be when we talk to you eight 
years from now, we'll tell you whatever our next evolution is, but we'll say that, you know, Gig East was that second foundation that went on top of a great network, all the infrastructure that you need, the right people in place and really exceptional customer service, and then figuring out what your community needs and building on top of that, which we've done with Gig East. Um, and it's still in its infancy. And I would also say that you should go and hire a professional communicator with vision, such as Rebecca, um, <laughs> and not try to rely on, uh, you know, technologists and business managers to figure out your development and communication strategy. Uh, because I think that synergy of having, you know, a dedicated team of professionals that know what they're doing to build the story and to lead in that way uh, has made all the difference here in our community. And Chris, I, I would hazard a guess you've seen that difference uh, over the yes. really 15 years that we've been working yeah, the uh, you know, engineers, I think, are trained to look for their own blind spots, but there's a lot when it comes to marketing they don't know that they don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that is well put. <laughs> um, let me ask you about the now the, the the wireless deal you have with Republic. Um, just a quick thumbnail sketch of that, if you don't mind, Will. Sure. So uh, Republic Wireless is a local partner who offers a low cost, again, in the neighborhood of the $10 brand price point. Uh, cellular service for our citizens. And, you know, it's just a, an opportunity for us to leverage our network, to bring new offerings into the community, more options. Uh, and in particular, you know, Greenlight customers do get a, a favorable rate uh, you know, from this partnership with Republic Wireless. So, you know, again, it's just a, another example of trying to bring to bear technology to be useful in the lives of our citizens. And do you have a lot of Wi-Fi access points in the in the area then that that they would be using when they are using? I mean, for people who who aren't aware, it's a it's a it was one of the early companies that recognized that if you could do a lot of calling on Wi-Fi, it was effectively free. And then if you're not on Wi-Fi, then you can roll over to like a Verizon network or something like that. So yes, uh, we have we have strong wireless, and the pandemic has made it stronger. We've deployed some of the neighborhood of 55 new access points in partnership with our school system, um, just you know, sort of identifying pockets within the community that needed access and finding places. Uh, so, you know, these days throughout our, our downtown central business district and in most public public gathering spots, you know, you're going to have strong Wi-Fi that's deployed on top of the Greenlight Network. Um, and, and similarly, you know, we also have that wireless available in the public housing authority areas and so on. Um, so we're constantly expanding that really to provide a seamless experience for the, you know, the citizen that has all those services. Well, I have one final question as we're, as we're already stretching the, the time budget. And, and that's if you can just give us a sense of your, your budget situation. Um, the, I'm always curious how it's going in terms of paying off the, the debt of the network. Um, and it, one of the things that I, I'll, I'll put words in your mouth. Um, I think we can agree on is that it's frustrating when people will make allegations that municipal networks are not paying off their debt or it will take a hundred years for them to pay off your right. debt. What is the reality in Wilson? The reality in Wilson first and foremost is, is that, you know, this argument about whether or not community driven broadband networks are going to make a lot of money is a false premise to begin with, because we're not, you know, that that's not the point. The point is, is they can be managed in a fiscally responsible way, Right. So nobody's saying it's not difficult. Nobody's saying that it's a, you know, some type of a cash cow for the community or a panacea for anything. It's just one more infrastructure investment that's necessary. So, you know, always important to acknowledge and recognize 
sort of the false premise around that whole part of the discussion. Uh, but also just in terms of practically speaking where we are, uh, we had two uh, series of bonds, basically, or certificates of participation. 2007 is the first one. Uh, next fiscal year, 2022, that series will be completely retired. Uh, thereafter, the second 2008 series of uh, COPS will be retired in 2025. And so that is a little less than 20 years after we launched the network that we will have retired the certificates of participation on the network. And are you going to have a, a big whirly gig party at that point? Well, we're always having whirly gig parties, <laughs> but we'll have a big one that day. <laughs> that's excellent. And uh, um, let me ask, is there any, like, I mean, I feel like that's one of the natural points um, that you focus on for network success. Is there, are there any other achievements that you're looking for? Like any goals you're setting for the next five or 10 years? Um, this is a question totally out of the blue that just popped into my head. So, yeah, so the big goal for us is to continue helping to guide the community through a digital transformation, right? So we're talking about all this infrastructure and technology we're deploying, uh, but you know, there are whole programs around uh, security and digital literacy um, and, you know, what does it mean that I have all these IoT devices in my home and in my business now? So, you know, the, the real metric for us is going to be how safely and effectively does the community l- utilize the technology we're bringing to bear. Um, and, and, and that's going to be a huge focus over the next several years. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you, Will. And thank you, Rebecca, for, for jumping in on the on the questions about the economic development and the communications. Uh, it's great to talk to both of you. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. That was Christopher talking with Will Aycock and Rebecca Agner. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at MuniNetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 430 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.